noticed yes. is that pretty much every story I've done in the last few years, um, at its root, is a story about a flow of money mm. from old industries to mm-hmm. to into the pockets of a very few tech oligarchs. But I think that's sort of totally changed the world and people aren't really thinking about it. And the reason why people aren't thinking about it is because the tech oligarchs are giving us what we want, yeah. which is everything for free on the internet. Is that really any different than the old model? It's just sort of shifting hands to different industries. Oh, no, I think there's less, yeah. like huge, significant, like, massive changes. I think the whole, like everything, like everything you can think of that's happening in the world today that's bad is as a result of that. <laughs> and also, you know, some things that are good. Um, so it's both. But the bad stuff too. Donald Trump. Yeah. That's because of that. Yeah, I guess my question is, you know, I mean, obviously you, you never want all the money in the hands of, you know, 1% of the population. But before it was in the hands of uh, Exxon and now maybe it's in the hands of Google or Amazon. But those people, but in the old days, there was a kind of, the money was being divided yeah. in... I think probably fairer ways. So newsrooms would start. Where, you know, you had investigative journalism, yeah. and you don't anymore. Like the like the best investigative journalism, or some of the best journalism that happened during the election, was from the Washington Post, and that was really because Jeff Bezos decided to spread his money yeah. back down to them. Yeah. If he hadn't decided to do that, then the Washington Post wouldn't have been able to do half the things that they did. So that was a kind of munificent decision by one of the one of the tech billionaires to, to allow that to happen. Does the system even out at some point? You know, obviously there's the up and the downside. The, the downside is that there's not as much money going into it, but the upside is that it doesn't require as much money. And it's a transition right now. Are things going to start evening out at some point, or are we just sort of screwed as far as journalism is concerned? Uh, I... I... I've got to say, I feel like I kind of feel worried about the future of yeah. journalism, along with everything else. Yeah, I mean, I'm making the reason why this isn't high up in my mind at the moment is because I'm making a series for Audible, yeah. which is going to come out probably next spring, um, about the tech takeover of the porn industry, and it's it's about all of this stuff. But I've decided yeah. to make it entirely, or, or not entirely, but primarily about porn because that's a world that people like. If nobody cares about a musician not making any money anymore mm-hmm. because all of their music is stolen. Nobody cares about it when it's porn because nobody cares about porn people. So I wanted to make a, a documentary about what happens when it's porn people. How long have you been working on that? Uh, about a year. So you've been embedded in the porn world for a year? Yeah, I've, been, <laughs> I've spent a lot of time yeah. on porn sets. Three days ago, <laughs> I was on a porn set. Yeah. Pa- paint a picture for me without going into too much detail. Where are you in, in this setup? Well, I wanted to... I don't want to give too much away because sure. I want to save it for, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. for the series. But um, I, I, I didn't want to do a story about... Um, exploitative, mean porn producers in the valley. And I'm sure those people exist. Although I'd say those people exist a lot less in the valley yeah. than in Florida yeah. or, or Las Vegas. In So I've been spending quite a lot of time on Mike Quasar's porn sets. Not, not familiar. Well, you wouldn't meet a nicer man than Mike <laughs> Quasar. He, it's, it's collegiate. It's like... It's like everyone loves to work with Mike Quasar. He's funny and smart. I would have him as a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's he. I enjoy his company. 
Um, you know, I, I don't think you'd find any story of any porn person leaving a Mike Quasar set feeling exploited or being asked to do something they didn't want to do or anything like that. So that's that's good for me because that's not what my series is about. I, I'm making a series about the tech takeover of the porn mm-hmm. industry, of which Mike Quasar is very much a victim because he used to have a crew of 10 people. Now he does everything. You know, he used to have... Um, he used to have a chef making everybody tacos and no. now they're lucky to get a little pack of pretzels. Yeah. Um, he does everything himself now. Um, he works three times as hard for a third of the money. So he's moved from his big house to a little house mm. and so on. Um, but on, on the set, it's it's a friendly, collegiate, sort of show-busy atmosphere. It's not that dissimilar to being... Um, you know, in a theatre, or it's probably more fun than being on a film set because mm. on a film set you, you're just sitting around for ages. In a in a porn set, Mike, Mike Quasar said to me, "If this if the scene is twenty five minutes, I will shoot for twenty six minutes because I want to. I don't want people having to hang around here, hang around any longer than they have to. Whereas on, a, on whereas if a scene is twenty five minutes in a in a movie set, that's like a month. Part of the appeal then was that this wasn't necessarily something that an NPR would look at. You know, this isn't the first place that they would go in order to explore the way that technology is impacting different industries. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's probably the main reason. So in some ways, it's a kind of metaphoric series because it's about porn, but it could be about journalism. It could be about music. Um, But also, also, it was a mysterious world to me, and I always like to go into worlds that I don't understand Worlds that I that are mysterious to me. Mm-hmm. That's always been the kind of wind behind my sails ever since I started out, and also because they're marginalised people. I I like telling stories about marginalised people who are marginalised by pretty much everybody, mm. not, not just the left or not just the right, but everybody. So so some of the people in my recent book about public shaming yeah. were disliked by everyone. Everybody. Yeah, and that's that's yeah. what attracted that is me that to is them. that is an interesting point in there is 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 the pylon that's coming not not only from all sides but that's coming from different sides from very different reasons. You know, the reason why they're attacking this individual. Yeah, it, it, you know, not everybody has has the same the same motive, right? Um, and it so becomes like legitimized bullying. Yeah, it becomes like selective empathy, yeah. and I think in a way the same thing is true. To, to a lesser extent, but still to some extent of the porn world. Sure. You know, there's people on the left who um, are derisive and dismissive of porn people, and there's people on the right too. So, but they're humans, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I don't feel dismissive or derisive of them at all. In order for that book to have really worked, though, you needed to find some of that bullying in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I, Absolutely. I needed to sort of, um, I guess, unpack my own. Yeah. God, I've been in America too long. I'm about to say I needed to find a way to unpack my own journey. <laughs> but I'd never have said that when I still lived in London. Um, but yeah, the fact that I used to be a shamer and then I had yeah. a kind of Damascus moment. Um, God, I'm blushing because I said that. It seems like you're the kind of person it takes a lot to make you blush, too. Yeah, I know, but that, <laughs> that made me blush. The words unpack my own journey. There's an instance in, in the book where you kind of, 
you do you do turn the camera on yourself and you say um i, I can't i can't remember who you were you were even uh, speaking about but it was i know that i've done this a lot in the past here's a very specific incident of a time when it when i you know basically kind of was the first person to point something out and kind of yeah semi ruined oh, somebody's life in the process yeah, it was a, it was actually a man who, who died like about three days ago oh, wow. um a girl he's a he's yeah. a sunday times columnist um he, he, he worked for vanity fair for a while too yeah. and he'd written a column about how he'd shot a baboon on safari because like all of us he wondered what it'd be like to shoot a person now he also um would give my television documentaries very bad reviews and so, I <laughs> so you were waiting you were yeah, waiting for a moment to pounce yeah and i started i i started the um yeah uh i started like a pylon in the early, this was in the early days of Twitter. This was probably like 2010 or something, 2011, when pylons were still kind of new and 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 exciting, and yeah. people weren't feeling quite as morally ambiguous about them as 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 they do. I hope now. Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, so I started pylon, but then he died. He died like like a couple of days ago. So it's so weird to tell the story now. How are you processing that? Well, I mean, did you reconcile? Um. Or at least, or I mean, apologize? I should say that when I did that, when yeah. I initiated a pylon against him, uh, he was still alive. So. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all going to die. Yeah. So that's true. I mean, yeah. you didn't yeah. kill him, most likely. I def- definitely didn't kill him. Um, he did we reconcile? Actually, sort of. Yeah. Because yeah. um, it sounded like you were feeling. I don't know if guilt is the right word. Yeah, I felt. I felt a certain amount of guilt. Some, yeah. As I was. Um, as I was um, enjoying the pylon that I had created, I remember somebody tweeted me. This is probably one of the kind of genesis stories of my public shaming book. Someone tweeted me, were you a bully at school? Yeah. And I was like, au contraire. <laughs> I, was, I, was not, I was not a bully. I was bullied. That's the origin story of a lot of people who participated in these pylons, yeah, right? People um, who were picked on and, it, right. and powerless. It got me thinking, like, so is the way to kind of pull yourself out of a hole of being bullied is to bully other people? Is that yeah. what's going on? Or, or is there another way? So all these thoughts started yeah. swirling around. Yeah, I mean, Eger um, was, a, was a kind of very brilliant and talented writer, but he was also very savage. Um so when he died a few days ago, I mean, rightly, people were remembering his his brilliant use of words and his talent mm-hmm. as opposed to his savagery. Um, but he was both. He was brilliant and he was savage. I wonder if if there isn't sort of a, I mean, you know, you're 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 a journalist, and obviously the kind of the the biggest rush is this scoop, or or I guess we call it the exclusive these days, but to be, to have been, to not only have picked that out for somebody who you had just been kind of waiting to slip up, but to be the first person with that piece of information on the internet and to sort of mm. like reap the congratulatory tweets is, is a, is a weird little rush in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Um, I don't know about you, but these days as I, as I get a little older, like the scoop has to have something else with it as well, which is yeah. you have to feel kind of ethically okay about the scoop. Yeah. Um, when I was in my twenties or in thirties, I probably would have taken the scoop, whatever prisoners, you know, I was taking. Yeah. But now I'm in my forties and I'm sure going forward, um, this, I, you know, the scoop has to, has to not have 
victims, really. Mm. Um, it, it has to be kind of ethically right. And I'll turn down scoops now if if I feel like someone's going to get hurt. Because, um, you know, you get older and you sort of accumulate your own baggage and then you, so you start to sort of be more empathetic towards other people, I, I think. Yeah. That's also one of the differences between doing all just solely online reporting and actually kind of going and, and meeting somebody. I mean, you, you point this out a lot in this book, and it's a reference back to an older book of... Of, psych- of the psychopath book, right? And that, and there are many instances. And obviously, this is something that was, you know, at the front of your mind for a lot of the writing. Are people just identifying sociopaths and psychopaths from afar? Yeah, we love nothing more than to declare other people insane. Yeah. Um, um, but you had, you know, be- because you were, because you had studied that subject, because you were so embedded in that for so long, you kind of went out of your way to point out to people that, I don't know, that you might have even said this at some point, that it's kind of a psychopathic tendency to identify other people as psychopaths from afar. Oh, it, it totally is. It's because one of the items on the psychopath yeah. checklist is lack of empathy. Yeah. Another is grandiose sense of self-worth. Uh, so um, to, to identify psychopaths from afar. Yeah is both grandiose and, and empathetic. I love that there's a moment in there where the uh, uh, the Formula One guy... I'm, I'm, uh, Max Mosley. Where, where he suggests that he might be one. It's con- people are constantly asking me yeah. if they're a psychopath. Now, my answer is if you're worried, like if you read the psychopath checklist and it makes you worried that you might be a psychopath, yeah. that means you're not one because psychopaths never worry about being psychopaths because what's there to worry about? How did you go down the psychopath road? Oh, um... Actually, it's, I don't put this in the book, um, for reasons that I think will probably become obvious, but, um, but I'm doing a stage show at the moment. I'm doing a theatre tour with, the, with this woman called Mary Turner Thompson. And she was the reason why I got into writing about psychopaths. And, and I'm taking, she's on the road with me now. We've been doing these theatre shows. She's, she's not one, is she? No, she's no. not one, but basically she was internet dating. Um, I'll cut the story really short. Sure. She was internet <laughs> dating and she met this man who was in the CIA, and um, so he'd like go away for six months. It was it was so weird for her being the wife of a because she she married him hmm. being the wife of a CIA agent. Sometimes, for instance, she'd be sitting in the theatre waiting for the show to start. Somebody would come and sit next to her and say, um, "I'm afraid your husband won't make it," and then would stand up and then leave. So, um, anyway, after seven years of this. She found out that he wasn't in the CIA. He was a bigamist and a um, fraudster. And he had people working for him. Yeah. Well, I think that was probably the theatre manager. I see. Like, he didn't employ a team in order to cover his tracks. No, but I mean, apparently his parents covered yeah. his tracks. Um, his parents would lie to her on, <laughs> on his behalf, which is amazing, right? Yeah. Um, so I said to her, "You must have been very upset." And she said, well, does the wildebeest feel upset when it's being chased by a lion? No, the wildebeest knows that it's not personal. (laughs) Um, And I said, well, are you telling me that there's some people among us who are like lions who just chase you for non-personal reasons? And she said, yes, and they're called psychopaths. And that was such a big thought. Yeah. Um, that that's what set me off to write the psychopath test. And now me and Mary are traveling together with some other people too and doing a theater show. I, I get her to tell that story. But it, but it, it's, it's certainly made you more cautious when it comes to judging people or, or jumping to those conclusions. Yeah. Which doesn't mean to say that psychopaths don't exist. Mm. I'm, I'm sure they do. Yeah. I've met some. <laughs> um, 
um, you know, people who are clinically, yeah. whatever you want to call them, antisocial personality disorder or sociopath or psychopath. I mean, it's, it's basically all the same thing. Um, and they definitely exist. People who have a kind of neurological absence of empathy. But but what I notice very much, and I see it happening on social media all the time too, is this proclivity, you know, this kind of love we have to turn other people into monsters. Yeah. I, I really hate... Um, I really hate it when we turn other people into into monsters, and I also really hate it when we turn other people into into impeccable heroes. Hmm. I think both things are very suspect, and social media tends to do both. Um, and, and you know, creating that kind of black and white polarized society, um, you know, is, is part of the reason why we're in the shit that we're in now. I'd mentioned this to you before, uh, before the interview, but, you know, after, after reading that book, I sort of went down this little Alex Jones rabbit hole and, right. and, um. You should probably explain that, like, the yeah. reason why is because I'm, I kind of, um, you know, in a, I mean, it would be too much to say that I kind of gave the world Alex Jones. I think, I, I think you say, I think you say, and, and, and then he like confirms this with a really bad Star Wars joke, but that you guys are sort of, inexorably linked to one another yeah we are we're we're in yeah um because back in the late 90s i had this idea to sneak into bohemian grove this elitist summer camp in california and secretly film their owl ritual um on the saturday night where where a papier-mâché effigy is thrown into a fire in front of a giant stone owl and dick cheney's there (laughs) and george bush is there and but I didn't want, so I wanted to infiltrate and try and secretly film it, but I didn't want to do it alone. Ma- mainly because, like, what if I didn't get in? There'd be like, there'd be no story. It would just yeah. be me standing outside a gate. Yeah. But, but if I failed alongside Alex Jones, <laughs> who at the time was a fledgling yeah. conspiracy. He was a real up and comer. Yeah, real up and comer. But, but mean, sort of a local Texas guy at the time. Yeah, but big in Texas. Yeah. Um, Everything's big in Texas, John. Right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I I suggested to Alex that yeah. he came with me, and so we got in and secretly filmed it, and it it kind of turned Alex into a star because mm. he brought out this documentary called Dark Secrets Inside Bohemian Grove, where what we had actually seen wasn't enough for Alex. He wanted to extrapolate it into yeah. us possibly witnessing an actual human sacrifice, um, which definitely we <laughs> hadn't. Um, we definitely hadn't seen an actual human sacrifice. He's 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 an interesting example that we sort of talk about the way that that media has changed and that you don't necessarily need the same sort of capital that you you did then. I mean, he, he was kind of on the forefront of that. I mean, you were you were working with um I think the BBC at the time. Yeah, well, Channel Four, which yeah. is like another British um, channel. Um, yeah, and he was. This was probably what ninety nine, maybe, and he was broadcasting his his show. Yeah, Info was. Um, out of his, out of a children's bedroom in his house in the suburbs, um, with choo choo train wallpaper yeah. on the walls and an Empire Strikes Back poster <laughs> down an ISDN line to his however many, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe even a couple of million listeners yeah. back then. Um, and it was just him, his girlfriend, Violet, and I think one other guy, Mike, maybe two other guys. And you're right. Now I went to see him again a couple of months ago and he has a, giant complex of yeah. studios and a staff of at least 75 and the ear of Donald Trump. Um, yeah. More <laughs> than the ear of Donald Trump. I mean, he he influences the things that Donald Trump says and thinks. 
it's a very kind of complicated relationship from the standpoint that you guys seem pretty friendly when he's interviewing you. You know, it, you know, it certainly wasn't it wasn't hit piece. And you mean the piece I wrote about him? No, no. Well, <laughs> uh, him him actually having you into the studio. You know, he seemed he seemed to be fairly nice. Obviously, he completely yeah. dominated the conversation, but that's what yeah. he does. Well, I wanted that to happen. I mean, the reason why he interviewed me is because I wanted to to interview him. Yeah. For this ebook, I was writing yeah. the elephant in the room, and he said, "Okay, but only if I can interview you as well." So I went on InfoWars and it was kind of damage limitation. I just didn't want to say anything that would blow up in my face. So I just sort of nodded yeah. and smiled a lot. And then when the show was over, I went into a room and interviewed him. I was gathering that you, you have this sort of sense of guilt, potentially, in the role that you played in, in his rise. I mean, you, I don't remember the exact wording that you say, but you, you might say something, something along the lines of one of the most irresponsible people you've ever met. Well, I mean, he is. I mean, I'm... I'm fond of that. This is difficult, and I'm constantly like <laughs> yeah. reassessing yeah. my thoughts on this because a few people have really gone for me about this. A few people have, have basically said, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself for giving Alex Jones a platform. Yeah, you know, do you really think Alex Jones is just this cozy man? Um, but then when I go to the other extreme and say he's the most irresponsible man I've ever met, that feels that that you know. Yeah, you know, I, um, I want to be. I don't want to do either. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to be his. I don't want to give him a too too easy a ride. I I I also feel that he's very influential at the moment, and when he, I think we're suddenly living in a time that when people like Alex Jones lie, people could die. There could yeah. be like a yeah. <clears throat> pizza, uh, pizza Gate is a pizza pretty good example. Pizza Gate is a is a very stark example yeah. that you know the Pizza Gate conspiracies came very much from Alex, and then somebody went into the pizza restaurant and let off a gun. You you could even say you know I mean look what's happening in well it's different. I was about to say look what's happening in Aleppo right now, but that's different and yeah. more complicated. But but yeah, Pizza Gate is a very good example. Um, so I don't want to. As a writer, as a chronicler of Alex and Alex's world, I don't, I certainly don't want to let Alex off the hook. Yeah. But neither do I want to be this kind of performance, um, critic where I go in and tell Alex off, where I, where I kind of go, because that's flawed too. So I'm in this kind of complicated situation at the moment where, where, well, that what I just said, <laughs> like I, 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 I don't want to give Alex an easy ride. Yeah. I think Alex definitely needs to be held account for for what's going on in his name at the moment. Yeah. But I don't want to be one of those sort of combative. I just don't feel my my role in journalism is to be a kind of combative shouter at somebody because I don't think that does any good either. So what I want to try and do is have a kind of congenial relationship with Alex where we both talk about these more difficult yeah. complicated things and, and the fact that Alex suddenly has something which I don't think anybody ever anticipated power yeah. you know actual political sway and I, what I would love is is for me and Alex to talk about this stuff as two adults who've been through a lot together and part of the question too becomes you know the word the, the word irresponsible I don't even know if that was the exact word they used but the word irresponsible seems to imply that 
he knows what he's doing, or at least that um, that he knows that what he's saying isn't necessarily true. And that's where mm. things, I think, become a little bit blurry. I mean, certainly, and as somebody who who was sort of in that, I mean, you were kind of in that conspiracy world for for a while and yeah. you, you brush up against it every so often um it's it can be hard to get your bearings once you go down some of these holes that there's definitely some things that alex says that he knows aren't true yeah i think that's the starting point um <laughs> when alex, diplomatic yeah i mean when alex says that obama and hillary literally smell of smell sulfur, sulfur yeah. and that flies land on them yeah alex knows that's not true <laughs> So, so that is a form of, you know, sure. right wing theatre. Sure. So what else? Yeah, but but is that uh, you know, it was when, when he says that I don't know. It's hard to know as from somebody who's so far outside of that world whether he's taking himself seriously and whether he intends other people to take him seriously when he literally sells, <laughs> says somebody smells like or somebody is a demon. Yeah, he's not taking himself seriously. Yeah, I don't think that, and I don't think he he expects other people to take him seriously. But they do. Um, sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. So I think he probably underestimates um, that some of his fans are prone to, you know, clinical paranoia. Yeah. Um, also, he's very good at what he does. I mean, he's, incre- he's incredibly talented as a broadcaster. Yeah. I'd say he's charismatic, he's tireless, you know, persuasive. Um, so where it gets murky is things like Pizzagate, yeah. where it's where there's no doubt that a lot of people who listen to him absolutely believe it. You know, more than believe that Hillary smells of sulfur will believe in in the child sex ring. Um, so. Does Alex believe Pizzagate? I mean, my instinct, like if you put a gun to my head, I said, you have to tell me whether yeah. or not Alex believes Pizzagate. My my instinct, knowing him, you know, on and off for 20 years, is that he doesn't believe it. But but I could be wrong about that. And, and maybe the point is moot. <laughs> yeah, like it doesn't matter whether he believes it yeah. or not. Yeah. Um, I think he believes it metaphorically. <laughs> um and now that's an a, interesting point. I mean, if you look yeah. at if you look at what half half of what he says as a metaphor for something else, yes, it's not completely crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, Bohemian Grove exists. Yes, yeah. these ruling elitists really do go to the secret summer camp, and they really do have this mock human sacrifice. And they're using literal metaphors. Yeah, and and he he took that to be something real, at least at the time yeah. he did. He sort of transposed it onto an actual human sacrifice. Well, I think maybe he was being metaphoric about a metaphor. <laughs> Um, so that's sort of like a double a double negative yeah yeah and we ended up with yeah. you know this is actual human sacrifice the, the, but i find this i mean i'm i'm and i'm i'm finding yeah. stuff very interesting um i mean i hope to spend more time with yeah. alex um to write about him some more um in a non like other people can say alex jones is a you know a monster like i'm i'm much more about trying to and you know understand people and relate to them and see the world through their eyes um so you know if i do get to spend more time with alex yeah it, it won't be to scream and shout at him 
you need you need a pod uh, like a, a William F. Buckley Gorby Dahl podcast between the two of you would be oh wonderful. I would lose like because I'm <laughs> I'm terrible in the face of conflict yeah. I, I I would just no I don't think it's William Buckley Gorby Dahl it's uh, you know it's it's like a nature documentary <laughs> yeah the single i mean it sort of uh, was ostensibly about the alt-right but mostly kind of filtered through him was that mm. you know as, as somebody who generally works on longer form pieces obviously you do you do magazine work but they're not it's not timely in the way necessarily that a, a new york times piece would be and then you're also working on these longer books at the time um yeah did you sort of see what was going on around you and feel the need to kind of uh, address well, the elephant in the room? I, um, the reason why I wanted to write the elephant in the room, um, I'm, I'm kicking myself a little bit um, uh, over this, is because around March of this year, 2016, I I had this sort of moment of Donald Trump is going to win the election. Yeah. Donald Trump's going to be the next president. Yeah, And it was all around Hillary's... Coal, coal miner gaffe. Do you remember that gaffe? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to put a lot yeah. of coal miners out yeah. of work. Yeah, Which she then went on and clarified yeah. and basically said, we're going to retrain them. Sure. To... But then she did the basket of deplorables. There were a few yeah. moments like that. But the day that she did that coal miner gaffe, yeah. she went on CNN. Somebody, she went to West Virginia as presumably as damage limitation. Yeah. And, and a coal miner started crying. Like she went to some diner and a coal miner went up to her and was crying. And it was caught on camera. And then she went on CNN, and I mean, this is from memory, but I think I'm right. The CNN person said, um, you know, how do you feel about what happened when that man came over to you? And Hillary said, what I want to say is that I am, I felt so honoured that he would. Um, and when she said the word honoured, a, a kind of shot of, of kind of repulsion yeah. came, went through me. Yeah. I thought, I thought that it, it was, it was, it was so insincere. A con- and a, a confirmation of everything that's being said about her at the time. Yeah. I, I thought, Trump's going to win. Trump's going yeah. to get the primary and he's going to win. And then Amazon asked, asked me if I wanted to write write something about the RNC. So I thought, well, Alex is my way in. Yeah. Um but then by the time I went to the RNC, I don't know, I, was, I started believing all the polls. It was like, there's no you way. You do say in the, toward the end of the book, you know, you, you do say, yeah. I think at some point, like something horrible would have to happen or something astronomic would have to happen in order for him to win. Yeah. Um, at, but at the beginning, I, I'm, I'm kicking myself for not sticking to my guns. Yeah. I, I really, I really thought he was going to win. Yeah. And then I believed all the polls. I, I believed all the statisticians who said he, he mathematically can't win. This book was in direct response to that idea early on that he might win. Yeah, it was. And it was sort of an anatomy of... Yeah, I tweeted, um, I think Donald Trump's going to win the election. Yeah. And, and a couple of days later, uh, an editor at Amazon, David Bloom, tweeted me and said, or, or emailed me and said, you know, I, I, I think you could be right. Yeah. Why don't, you know, we're looking for somebody to go to the RNC and write about it do you want to do it so i said um yeah uh, and then i thought well what's my I, I don't know about you but i always need i always one of the first questions i always ask myself when i'm about to embark on a story is is like why why me yeah like, what what gives me the right to write this story or what am i bringing to the table yeah what am yeah. i bringing to the table whatever um yeah. and i thought well what 
what I've got in this story is Alex Jones. <laughs> I've got this 20-year <laughs> relationship with Alex Jones. Yeah. And, and so I decided to turn the story into that. Yeah. Uh, um, and it was good. It was. I mean, I really enjoyed the experience. Plus, it means I've got 15,000 words capturing that moment in time, yeah. which might become part, like if I write another book about, if I write a kind of them too, like another book about the alt-right, now they have power. Because when I was with them in the 90s, they were powerless and now they have power. So that's like a massive change. In a sense, you obviously saw some of this coming, you know, early on that you saw that there was a very real possibility that he, he could win. Do you feel that that you had an early glimpse into that kind of that rise to power and the le- legitimization of it? Back in the 90s. Um, or even even, you know, during during the, the campaign, as all this stuff was really sort of starting to come to the surface. No, honestly, I thought the alt-right was going to be a hindrance to Trump, not, yeah. not a help to him. You thought it would be a, continue to be a fringe group? Yeah, I thought, I remember saying this to Roger Stone, actually, like, you're going to, you know, Trump going on InfoWars is surely going to put off more people than it attracts. <laughs> and he was like, no, you're wrong. Yeah. And I was wrong. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I never thought that Alex would, would help Trump to power. Yeah. Um, because I believe in rationality. <laughs> yeah, I believe in kind of, I believe in facts. And I thought most people shared that. It was so strange going back and, and reading the public shaming book and reading the Jonah Lair stuff at the beginning and yeah. realizing like what not so long ago completely ruined his life. For things, for, for making up stuff that quite frankly wasn't as bad yeah. as the stuff that, that was I mean, really up. I mean the the thing that set the uh, the blogger off was was really just kind of he he extended some Bob Dylan cuts. So obviously yeah. it got went deeper than that, but it went deeper than that. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> one of one of Jonah's like, you know, original sins was misquoting Bob Dylan is reading about himself in the newspaper. Uh he smokes sixty a day. Yeah. Um, so Bob Dylan like looks up and says, "I'm glad I'm not me," and Joan Alera changed that to, "I'm glad I'm not me. I'm glad I'm not that." He he made the mistake of pulling it from the Penny Baker documentary. Which, yeah. So there was some very clear evidence. I, and when um, and when um, uh, Michael Moynihan said to him, yeah. "Where did I'm glad I'm not that come from?" Joan Alera made the you know extraordinary error. Of basically saying, oh no, my Bob Dylan quotes are accurate. It's history that's wrong. Hmm. Uh, I have had special access to, you know, blah, blah. And it was all bullshit. You say extraordinary error, but could, is there anything he could have done in that instance that would have saved his ass? I think if at the very beginning yeah. he'd said, you know what? I fucked up. I, I was, I wrote, I put that in a proposal 18 months ago in a book proposal 18 months yeah. ago. Um, I am constantly giving corporate talks, uh, which means I'm constantly going around yeah. America making very good money, giving yeah. talks to corporations that nobody's ever heard of. I wrote this book really fast. Um, uh, that quote was in a proposal and I was too lazy and stupid to take it out. I will call my editors right now and make sure that, that that's, that the mistakes are corrected for the second edition. He might have got away with it. You compare it to Russian roulette. I mean, you bring up that analogy, which is like yeah. probably, and, and you pull out some of your own yeah. semi-ironic, you know, jokey tweets, but things that like easily, if 
the wrong person ran with it could have completely derailed your career. Yeah, I, it was a joke. This was to do with Justine Sacco, yeah. who, who, who tweeted going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, uh-huh. I'm white. Yeah. And and it reminded me, like, and she was like obviously destroyed for it, and it reminded yeah. me of when I was writing The Guardian. I used to write a column in The Guardian. And I was stopped at Miami airport and taken into like secondary processing. And it was basically me and, and lots of Latino people. And there was a sign on the wall that said no cell phone use. So I wrote a guardian column about this incident. And I, and I, I had myself thinking, Oh, I'm sure they won't let me use my, I'm sure they won't mind me using my cell phone. After all, I'm white. Which is clearly a joke about white privilege. But it, and it's just, the, the punchline is literally the same. I mean, yeah, the, the, it's uh... exactly the same punchline. <laughs> the context is different. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, I wrote the joke in The Guardian. Yeah. I, I didn't get a single criticism yeah. for it because I think the context was yeah. very clear that it was a joke where I was making fun of my own privilege. Um, but, well, you know, my, yeah, that's what the joke was. And, but exactly after what happened to Justine Sacco, I thought, God, it's like, I'm like, I feel like Christopher Walken in The Deer Hunter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> putting the gun to my head and pulling the trigger and it doesn't go off. It's like, it's like the nightmare. It's the horror of people changing the rules. Yeah. And you don't know that the rules have been changed. It's kind of like Being Kafka. asleep on a flight yeah. at the time. Or it's like waking up and realizing yeah, you're, you're a giant you're insect. Yeah. yeah. It's The rules have been changed yeah. by people younger than you. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't know you you you've, you've lagged behind, and you don't know that you can't do that anymore. Do Do you think though? I mean, have, have things changed enough, really, in the past several months that you know, it, maybe a, a Jonah Lair incident wouldn't have the same impact now? Or it it does seem you know that hmm. liberals, leftists, NPR listeners are a lot better at kind of you know eating their own. Than, yeah. Than the right well, is. I mean, everything's got a bit quiet, I think, since Trump got elected in terms of the left eating, yeah. eating our own. Um, um, I think partly because we're trying to work out like, did we, what did we do to contribute to this? Yeah. So there's lots yeah. of conversations about like identity politics, for instance, at the moment. Um, and did they contribute? To Trump's victory, yeah, media normalizing. Yeah, or, or you know the fact that Hillary um, leaving out white men, kind of thing. Yeah, did that contribute yeah. to Trump's victory? I, I mean, for me, my my personal view on this is that thinking about putting it within the context of identity politics is the wrong thing to do because identity politics are very important to lots of people, and I and it would be kind of condescending. Um, and, and wrong to, um, to blame identity politics. But I think what we can blame is a kind of aggressive authoritarianism, <laughs> which, which impacted the left and made people, you know, um, and turned people away. I mean, I saw that happening for the last few years. I saw, I, I said this like back in about 2013, uh, like, you know, some kid goes on Twitter, makes a joke, it comes out badly. Um, the left tear them apart. Who is waiting with open arms? The right, Breitbart. They're the ones who are waiting. They're the ones who are welcoming that kid. Um, uh, but I think as a, as a consequence of all of this, everyone's gone a bit quiet now um, while we try and work out like what to do next. And I think if, if a Jonah Lehrer thing happened right now, he'd probably get away with it. Do you think this whole idea of factual ambiguity and, and moral relativism 
is that is that kind of is that overstated in the moment? Obviously, it it contributed to what happened mm-hmm. to to Trump's rise and and election. But um, I mean, this this can't be the end of news or the end of facts, can well, it? I, I I mean, I think we need truth and facts more yeah. than ever now. Um, we can't sit back and allow the goalposts to be changed by people like Alex Jones and Donald Trump and Stephen Bannon. Like, we, we have to fight. Even if, like, some people say, you know what, fake news didn't didn't um, change the, the results of the election. All it did was reinforce what, what people were thinking anyway. Yeah. And, it, and even if that's entirely true, it's still, I think, enormously important that we that we fight back against fake mm-hmm. news um more important than than ever i would say um because truth is important and as i said earlier on like when people like breitbart lie now since trump yep. got elected that could directly lead to to people dying obviously a big contributor to the problem is that everything is so siloed right now mm-hmm. you know and you know when you're when you do something on on npr or um you know you're you're writing to you're writing to your readers yeah um certainly going on alex jones's show is 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 an opportunity to, to potentially kind of reach other people right um, well i went on glenn beck last week oh, for, the, for oh. the same for the same reason golly um I, and actually in terms of like yeah. um common ground i have more common ground with i mean on a personal level i like alex jones because how can you not like somebody you've had sort of sure. great adventures with yeah, in your life yeah. um so, but but on a sort of political common ground level i have mm. more in common with glenn beck because i think glenn beck like me feels that the center yeah um you know i think glenn beck's had a kind of some damascus moments and feels guilty about all the division and polarization that he's that he's perpetuated over the years and 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 wants to wants to find a common ground and i also think on the left we need to find a common ground so um yeah but yeah but when you know ask any fake news person ask any like breitbart or alex jones or fan of those people you know about fake news they'll always come up with the same answer which is oh fake news what do you mean the washington post do you mean the new york times but i mean i don't need to tell you the two things could not be more different yes you know Sure, of course, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Guardian, they have biases. Um, they get things wrong from time to time. But there is a world of a difference between that and and creating a, a fantasy world, which is what yeah. InfoWars does. Do you think, though, when they look at the mainstream media, that, that that's actually what they see reflected back at them? It, are uh, people making up facts? I think so. Yeah, I think because this, you know, again, yeah. this is why relativism is so tricky. Yeah. Because of course, you see the the sources that you rely on as being yeah. factual. I mean, you know, we made a mistake, and when I say we, I mean the sort of mainstream left leaning yeah. media made a mistake in marginalising them all of these years, yeah. and it's it's annoyed me for years. Like I've seen it happen for years. When I was at the, I, I read about this in the Elephant in the Room. You know, when I was at the RNC, everybody was saying to me, all these people were saying to me, "Oh my God, did you see the avocado lady mm, give her mm-hmm. speech?" You know, oh God, the avocado lady. It was hilarious, yeah. and I kind of skittishly rushed to YouTube to watch the avocado lady. And the avocado lady was this actor called Kimberlyn Brown, who was now an avocado farmer, and she was on stage saying that trade deals were killing 
American farmers. And it was an entirely sympathetic and legitimate thing that she was um, saying. But we were mocking her and ridiculing her. People were tweeting, shut up about your stupid avocados. Nobody gives a shit what you have to think, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Even though what she was saying is no different to what Bernie Sanders would have said. Um, and so that polarization coming from the left and marginalizing working yeah. white Americans was was annoying then and and is still annoying to me and we shouldn't do it. That was John Ronson. His new piece is called The Elephant in the Room. It's a Kindle single, something we spoke about uh, a fair bit during the conversation. And, and if you know me personally, there's a pretty good chance that I've recommended it to you at some point over the last couple months. Really fascinating insight into the alt-right, but uh, even more than that, Alex Jones, with whom uh, John has had a very uh, long and, and, and fascinating relationship. I, I, I read that book and then immediately went down. I, I don't necessarily recommend this part of the process, but if you are interested then by all means uh, ended up going and watching a, a lot of Alex Jones shows where he, he brings uh, John on um, just utterly, utterly fascinating stuff as as is everything that uh, John has ever done I recommend uh, you checking that out, uh, check out the Psychopath Test, uh, check, out, check out his last book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed uh, thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. That was a conversation that I'd been wanting to have for a really long time, and, and we just couldn't uh, couldn't make it work. But thank you so much to Carrie Poppy for helping facilitate that. And actually, once uh, once once Carrie was on the case, it all came together shockingly quickly. So thanks to her, thanks to John, thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program. If you do enjoy the show. Please rate us over on iTunes if you've got a little bit of cash to send our way to help us pay for hosting fees. You can do that over on Patreon. We are not running any advertisements on the program anymore, uh, so we are basically losing money on every episode of the show unless you can toss a couple bucks our way. Uh, if you've got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L-related information. We've also got a, a Facebook page of sorts, so please like us over there. I think that's about all I got, so uh, thanks for listening, and stick around, because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L. 